0: All right, so uh, uh, good afternoon. Uh, Welcome to the uh,
1: uh, weekly serious security uh, uh, seminar. Uh, Today is my uh, great uh, pleasure to welcome our honorable guests from uh, Sandia National Labs. Uh, We have an excellent uh, group of uh, colleagues uh, coming to visit us. And our uh, main speaker is going to be Mr. Uh, Vincent Urias. So Vince is a uh, computer engineer and a principal member of technical staff. Uh, in Sandia's uh, Cyber Analysis Research Development Department. Uh, He has made major contributions to Sandia's uh, cyber defense programs, especially in the simulation of complex networks, uh, in developing innovative cybersecurity methods, and in designing uh, exercise scenarios that test the limits of current network security. Uh, This work is helping Sandia's customers anticipate current and emerging security threats and make critical decisions about their investments. Uh, Vince and his team use technologies to conduct cyber defense exercise in partnership with the U.S. Department of Defense and to support national security in collaboration with colleagues at other U.S. Department of Energy national labs, uh, DOD national labs, as well as the U.S. military. So without further ado. Um, I will let uh, Bill say a few words. All right,
2: thanks. So uh, my name is William Hart. And uh, before Vince gives his uh, his technical talk about cybersecurity work at Sandia, we thought that we would uh, provide some background about Sandia and show you a brief video that provides some context about what's it like to work at the labs. So Sandia is the uh, largest of the Department of Energy's uh, national laboratories. Uh, Historically, it's been responsible principally for engineering and maintaining the safety of nuclear weapons, but in the last couple decades, Sandia's mission has evolved to support a very wide range of national security programs for the U.S. government, Uh, one of which is supporting uh, cybersecurity through a variety of different programs for DHS, the Department of Defense, and and for the Department of Energy as well. So uh, with that, that, I'll uh, show you a quick video, and uh, we can proceed to Vince's talk.
3: So what drew me to Sandia was the idea of really working for a mission. I really wanted a career where
0: I felt like I could be improving the world in some way. And with Sandia's mission focus on national security, I think that we really have the opportunity to have an impact broader than just within the laboratory, but actually have some global impact as well. Personally, I think with regard to the mission work, I think there's a tremendous amount of pride um, and value in knowing that you're contributing to A large infrastructure.
4: Our mission is exceptional service in the national interest. It helps make my community safer, it makes my country safer, it makes me want to work harder because I know it actually impacts people's lives.
3: So we do work in terms of chemical biological defense, disaster preparedness, of course nuclear weapons, radiological detection, cybersecurity, and just a whole host of different problems you see the impact of your work on a daily basis. The work that we do is tremendous and it is underpinning a lot of the national security and our safety and so I'm
4: proud to be a part of that. Contributions that I make are directly related to, to tangible things that relate to the nation. I've been able to have
2: a lot of freedom to pursue the type of work that I find interesting.
0: At the laboratory, I'm always being given the opportunity to address a new challenge, answer a new problem, work for a new sponsor, um, and learn new things. It's important to be able to
1: evolve because you change, your interests change, your strengths develop, and Sandia provides the flexibility to adjust to every twist and turn.
4: I'm excited about working here because Personally, I'm very motivated by learning new things and also solving problems, particularly problems that have significant impact. And in this environment, I have a very rich set of R&D problems that I can work on and try to solve.
1: We get to play with the newest, greatest technologies. We get to integrate technologies from various areas into the national security realm. I've seen some of my work be deployed around the world and it's humbling and it's an amazing experience to to have the opportunity to contribute to a solution that, that has such widespread effect. The sheer
3: amount of talent that we have at India is staggering.
4: We get to work with great colleagues who are experts in their fields.
0: So really it's about pulling people from different backgrounds, different skill sets And really finding that right team.
3: Being able to come here to Sandia and feel part of a larger community was was a big deal to me. From the get-go I felt like people knew
0: who I was, were interested to know my background, but more importantly wanted to integrate me into the team very quickly.
4: I really liked the focus on professional development and how much Sandia invests in early career professionals. It's hard to replicate the stability and the benefits that you
1: get from working here. I feel like I determine my destiny. I determine my success.
3: If you're interested in a rewarding career, working with great folks, cutting edge technology, then Sandia is a place that you should strongly consider.
0: If you want to go somewhere and be in an environment where you can talk to world leaders and world experts in a variety of fields, as well as really be challenged yourself technically um, and scientifically, I think Sandia is a tremendous and great place to do it. You know, I feel like an important member of the
3: team. I feel like I'm contributing to my country, and it's a great feeling to come to work.
1: I want the world's greatest and brightest minds here so that we can work together and come up with new and better solutions. The reason I get up every morning to come to Sandia National Laboratories is to have high impact. I know that when I go home at the end of the day, I have accomplished something that's going to be bigger than myself.
2: Okay, well, uh, while Vince sets up his laptop, let me just say a few more words. So, um, uh, my job is a partnerships manager manager working with Purdue University. So Sandia has identified Purdue as one of uh, a select select group of universities that we want to develop deeper partnerships with. And as a consequence, uh, they've uh, assigned me here to live in West Lafayette and develop uh, research relationships with Purdue faculty and with students. So if you want to learn more about uh, Sandia's mission uh, after the the presentation, uh, feel free to reach out to me. I have an office in Discovery Park. And uh, we and I regularly bring out uh, staff from Sandia as well as managers to to interface with, with new faculty and, and students. All right. With that, I'll pass it off to uh, to Vince and Will.
3: Uh, also introduce Will Stat real quick. Uh, Will's uh, uh, critical part of the team. He is keeps me honest, keeps me on track, and he's a great. Uh, uh, asset. 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 <laughs> you want to
0: talk a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, my name is Will Stout. I've been at Sandia for about four and a half years now. Everything in there was true to a point. To a point. True to a point. Uh, before coming to Sandia, I was a DOD guy, so I ran a DOD active duty type things um, in the communication, cybersecurity domain. Uh, at Sandia. I continue on, but now I'm delving more into the research and development aspect. So my background is primarily networking, software-defined networking, delving into some cloud space, delving into some IoT as well.
3: Awesome. So hopefully uh, this will be an interesting talk. I like lots of feedback. I tell lots of jokes. I'll pick on people. But um, we're going to talk a little bit about network deception and some of the research we've done in the last three, three, four, four years now mm-hmm. on how we look at network deception as an emerging field, as emerging technology to help uh, understand threat intelligence. Uh, if we Jump in. We'll just tag team it. Sure, uh, so we'll talk a little bit about uh, introduction, motivation, the environment itself, uh, and then sort of the differentiating factors of the technology. And then we'll walk through some we'll walk through some awesome use cases, and then conclude. Um,
0: right. And I, if I, we have time, there's video. There's video at the end if we have time. But yep. I also speak very quickly,
3: so feel free to say I, 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 don't, I don't make much sense. I, I like I like laughter. It's okay. It's okay <laughs> to laugh. It's okay. I swear. All right, so uh, so deception as a whole, right, has existed for years and years and years, right. There's been lots of prior art in this field, in, in philosophy, in the military, you know, in, in countless areas. And as a whole, you know, it's also co- existed in computer network defense, right. So things like honeypots have existed. I think I'm not here to talk much about theory or background or doctrine in this area, more application use cases. So uh, I'm very uh, o- operationally focused individual, and talk a little bit about my background as we go through this. But it's like, how do you build tools? What are the tools that are available to analysts and to network defenders in order to aid them do, t- in doing their job. So um, so we contend, uh, you know, de- deception is a powerful uh, concept that has been underutilized by network defenders. Um, there's a lot of contemporary tools that are not sophisticated enough to deal with um, the uh, threat actors that we see today. They're awesome in creating the fog of war, but at the end of the day, this. hopefully you understand from this talk, the hope is to close the gap between understanding the defender's uh, goal uh, which is to defend the network and then gathering threat intelligence and merging those two, right? Using deception as a mechanism to say, hey, threat intelligence is produced. So understanding when an adversary compromises the network or compromises the machine, there's information you can gather from them in real time to aid and defend the network. And how do we close that gap in a real-time fashion with that's not intrusive? Um, and then, uh, so the defender's needs, right? So uh, I, I came from an operational background. I was very much focused on uh, net defense on our, uh, on our systems and working with partner systems and understanding, hey, so uh, there, are, there is a need, right? So if you look at modern techniques and tools, they're very reactionary in the sense that a compromise has existed somewhere else and we're trying to mitigate it. So we, uh, things like IPSs, IDSs, you know, uh, uh, network firewalls, et cetera, are there to prevent an action that's already been seen. Uh, they're very reactionary. And uh, it doesn't really necessarily evolve with threat. Once threat happens, once threat exists, uh, you know, these signatures are very static and not very mutable. So how do we get to the point uh, uh, of understanding what the adversary is doing? And what we see is we lose lots of threat intelligence um, from that space, right? So when there's a compromise at a, at a site, at a location, what what is our instinct? As a network defender, what do we want to do? Unplug the box, right? We want to say, hey, stop the bleeding. The bleeding has happened. Our job is to stop that bleeding. But the consequence, co- uh, the consequence is we don't really know um, how or what the motivation of that adversary is? How much in- information did they know before coming in? What 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 are they looking for? Are they have they been there before? Those are the questions I'm interested in, right? Because that's going to further help develop the the, the my, uh, my capabilities to defend that network. So, uh, really, at the time, this is about three three and a half years ago, right? Uh, we said, hey, the network defender, there there are a few or limited capabilities that allowed us to interact with with our adversaries. Our adversaries, uh, since we're they, they exist on our network, and we we want to enable a network defender to, to interact with it in some level. So uh, we said, well, we need to build build better tools to gather information about our adversaries. So that's what we try to do. Even more so, there's uh, over the last few years, we've seen um, uh, some interesting trends. Also, there's lots of intelligence needs, and that is, you know, you see a lot of intelligence feeds. So things like um, eyesight partners and eye defenses uh, purchases in the last you know year, year and a half by FireEye and others are these threat feeds that have taken tens of years to develop are now going behind behind the curtain and other companies are buying them they are not freely accessible they're not being disseminated Uh, the information could become um, not necessarily as ubiquitous as it is right now so in three years you know what else is going to happen are other feeds are are all the feeds going to get purchased other things like that are sort of emerging issues from a threat perspective and on top of that we're saying hey uh, is there a way to sort of create a custom profile custom Set of tools to, to proactively defend my network and, and ask questions about the security posture of my organization in a very tailored fashion. So, uh, so about uh, in 2015, there was a report released by Gartner, and this is to me is some set of validation about the techniques and information that w- we've been producing. And they said, you know, deception uh, in this Gartner report, deception is an emerging field, and they believe by 2025 that. Uh, uh, in, by 2025, they're going to see that uh, deception as a technique is going to be operationalized and used by about 20 to 25% of the community by, in order to help protect the network. This is a basis for, yes, sir.
4: On your deception procedures, are you looking at the capability of being able to pretend that nothing has happened on a network and then shift all your traffic to another one and conduct business there?
3: Uh, That is one mechanism. So we'll be walking through like three or four different operational modes. And that is one one way is that you have the operational network here and then using SDN and a couple other strategies, you can move them to another network that exists and coexists at the same time and let them continue to opt within that environment. But yes. Yes, sir. So uh, again, right? There is significant opportunities in advanced threat detection, and there's a a need for actionable intelligence. And uh, if you read the report, but there's lots of gaps right now. If you look at the commercial field, uh, they're emerging as uh, uh, they're coming. uh, There are emerging market leaders, but there's still a lot of deficiencies. And they even claim that you need to be able to develop and uh, synthesize actionable intelligence. Um, So. Uh, there's lots of different places, so they, they map to, the, again, in the Gartner Report, they r- map to different parts of the cyber kill chain, and uh, they say there's different ways that you can live within that space, and as we go through the presentation, we'll talk about some of how we live and coexist across most, most of the space in order to sort of successfully mitigate threat. So uh, some more motivation, right? So if you think about it, uh, common IT infrastructure is built off of predictability, right? We want common configuration management, common patch management. The infrastructure has, in order to have hygiene, you have ubiquity, you have homogeneity. And that's actually what's being used and leveraged by our adversary in order to um, uh, maximize their opportunity within our environment. So if they can compromise one box, it's likely they can compromise multiple boxes. On top of that, Our contention is that we can uh, exploit this understanding and exploit this expectation of homogeneity through cloud and virtualization technologies and say, hey, there may be things that change, and, and you may not know about them. So uh, through deception, right, there's lots of things we can do. And th- we'll talk about how, you know, from a mindset perspective, we want to do a lot of things in order to change the asymmetric nature of how we see threat today. Very much so, you know, uh, they pop a box and there's, they, uh, right, they can break any window within a house and they can get in and steal our information, right? That's, that's one approach, right? So the hope is that we want we can do things like devalue the information that they're gathering, increase the dif- difficulty attack, expose their intent, uh, limit the scope of the attack, uh, introduce doubt into their minds when an attack happens, and say, hey, so when, when an attack is going on if you use an exploit, if you try to exfil data and things don't work, what is the issue? Is the issue with my, my device? Is the issue with my uh, capability? Is the issue with the network connection? There's a lot. The hope is to change and inc- introduce work somewhere in their lifecycle in order to um, help them, help us change the asymmetric nature of the attack. Whew, sorry. I also drank a monster, so I'm taking, speaking very quickly. But uh, So there's um, a three, f- three focus areas that we focus on, and part of it is You know, again, we take a very systems approach to things, right? So you try to uh, introspect and understand what's going on in the endpoint, understand and change the mutability of the network, and then the environment itself. So how do you create an environment such that you can have things like uh, uh, highly virtualized, highly complex environments with traffic generation, and then tailor that to the operational environment that you exist in? So the environment itself, um, so for me, the, the approach is that we have virtualization and uh, we, the predecessing factor, right? So if you think about three years ago, what, what ends up happening is um, uh, what we saw is that y- you know cloud was becoming more and more ubiquitous. On top of that, uh, about three, three and a half years ago, SDN was becoming um, a little bit more and more prevalent and was emerging as, a, as an interesting area, right? So you have mutability in the network and you have mutability on the endpoint through virtualization. So we're saying, hey, can we, Leverage that sort of change in, in the operational environment. So these things are coming in and being adopted by, you know, Fortune 500 companies, uh, common enterprises. So the hope is that through these changes in the network, we can then help inject ourselves in the life cycle somewhere. So um, uh, the other half is, uh, I have this belief, right? If you go back in how we're. Um, it, it, uh, so, I have this belief, and that's, you know, their adversaries are very sophisticated. They keep on pulling on information, and this very much. Uh, you need to be able to extract information about what's going on. If you look at a lot of the tools that exist, uh, the, this understanding of what a TTP is, what a tool tactic procedure is, uh, being able to extract it in real time is not. It doesn't exist, right? We do very much forensics, right? So if you think about the box uh, when the comp- box is compromised, how we extract information from that is we pull the pull the plug and we do forensics. The question for me was, could we do that in a more real time fashion? Could we start understanding, hey, as a compromise is happening, as an adversary is working on our networks, could we understand how they're navigating the directory structure? Can we understand what the information they're looking for? What passwords and um, uh, tools may exist that they have and then how they pivot through the network right to me that's all actionable information it's like hey when you have a compromise why are you here what are you looking for and what's valuable to you all that should be fed back to Network Defender so uh, that's where our uh, transparent reaching capabilities sort of work and the agentless Uh, For me, right. So, if you look at a lot of other approaches in in technology space right now, they're very agent-focused, right? So, to me, you're putting something in there, either custom or commercial, that may exist. The problem is that to me, it's a signature. That's something that you or an adversary can see. So, how can I do this in a transparent fashion without them knowing what I'm doing to them or interact or how I'm I'm interacting with them? On top of that. Uh, uh, we have this belief that is you need to merge lots of pieces of information. So host-based information, so uh, packets and logs is what the world comes, fr- c- comes down to for me. right? So get log information, system call information, guest state information, and merge that dynamically with the network state. So getting things like DPI and merging that dynamically so I can sort of see the entire kill chain all at the same time. Ah. Want to talk for a little bit? Sure. Yeah, absolutely.
4: How are you- how are you guys handling the situational awareness? To all that because that's a pretty, oh, yeah. pretty, pretty, pretty complex task. Are you guys going to get into that in a moment, or? Yeah,
3: I think it is the approach and where and how we tap everything, and then we throw everything into. Uh, to, to jump to the the punchline is we throw everything into a seam. So we throw everything into Splunk right now, and then use time, temporal time sequencing to to get information out.
4: So you're still at the raw data part? You haven't really quite figured out the human interface to it? because you're That's correct.
3: It. So the hope is that you provide the information to the analyst, right? So uh, enabling, we're, uh, we'll, we'll allude to some of this as sort of the, the work, the, the collaboration hopefully is in some areas like causality, right? We're trying to get to the point where you have all this information and you can create causal graphs. But that was the starting point, was how much information can you pull dynamically in real time? And then how do you store that information sort of where, where, where we're at today? And now it's how do you enable uh, analysis primitives to help the analyst navigate that data. Have you looked into business intelligence cubes? So things like uh, Tableau and—is uh, that what you're talking about? Like,
4: yeah, you know, when you're capturing snapshots of three-dimensional data in time and then doing the analysis.
3: Uh, uh, so yeah, we're we're looking at things—not uh, necessarily uh, business cubes, but looking at temporal graphs and looking at temporal graph evolution as one approach. But um, uh, I've not looked at business cubes yet.
4: Okay, it may not be necessary. I was yep. just curious. Thanks. Yep.
0: All right, so as Vince mentioned, there are basically three tenants. I go into this deception environment, deception framework, deception concept, if you will, and that's the virtualization environment itself. That's a platform upon which we deploy all of the, the endpoints, the network the system itself. Virtual machine introspection, so how can we reach into a virtual machine to determine what's going on and pull information out that's reflective of what's happening on that particular endpoint, and of course, software-defined networking. Um, how can we change the state of the network? How can we change the perspective of the network, either given from the, the endpoint that is the, the user of the network, or if someone is going into the network to attack? How can we change all that perspective in real time while still maintaining things like TCP connections so that these, uh, these breaks or these changes in the network from an operational network to a deception network aren't necessarily noticed by those people in the network or attacking the network? So the virtualization uh, environment itself. So Sandia has a long history of um, test and evaluation, testing uh, test ranges, and things like that. So we come from. You want to talk a little about that? That's your yeah. background, right? Yeah. So, uh, very much. Let's keep it this. this so long. very
3: much. If you think about it, um, we come from OT background. So uh, how do you do operational tests in some meaningful way? How do you emulate system state so you can understand vulnerabilities? Things like that. And uh, from that came a, a series of technologies that we've evolved over the last decade, and you know, starting with live virtual construction system modeling and extremely high density virtualization. How do you represent and, and create both uh, uh, services, uh, networks? And uh, all the underpinning that you could say, oh, let's let's build a. So for instance, something tangible. Let's say let's build Purdue, right? Let's build Purdue's network ground up. So given sensor information, let's say hosts, uh, operating system information, service information, account information. How could you build all of that in real time without having uh, analysts in the loop? And we built a whole platform around that. Uh, we we called sort of the platform and the technology Emulitics, which is the emulate art of emulation and analytics together. And so we can start reasoning. And the reason for this, the outcome. The reason we built this is, you know, there's really no science around cyber right now. And the lack of science around cyber really uh, understands, uh, causes a lot of uh, non-determinism and lack of knowledge. So through experimentation, much like a lot of other basic sciences and how they evolved, we believe that that's one way we can um, start reasoning about the system. So, we did a lot of stuff around this, right? So, we did a lot of uh, rehosting and how do you do hardware in the loop, extremely high density. So, we have a series of technologies uh, focusing on hey, let me boot 700 Windows boxes on a single com- uh, commodity blade. So uh, changes to scheduler, into memory, to context switching things, right? It's, it's awesome, uh, awesome stuff. And on top of that, we want extremely high fast boot times. So I don't want to wait 15, 20, 30 hours to boot 10,000 virtual machines. I want to be able to boot that in five, seven, 10 minutes. So leveraging all of that, we also said, hey, can we also automate the ability for us to represent and discuss and uh, encode how a network is specified. So build the whole language around that. So saying, hey, this is what a network. Uh, uh, how, how we represent services in that network. How we represent operating systems. How we represent sort of links and nodes, routing infrastructure, and then create and boot all of that in in an autonomous fashion. So that was the underpinning of this. So we started this about three years ago, and there was a, there that was the foundation, right? We had a great ability to say, hey. Uh, we can build these cool networks that are highly representative that people like red teams and blue teams interact with. Uh, can we use the same technology and say, can we deceive an adversary with it? So that's where we started. Any questions so far? I know I'm speaking quickly. You guys seem super enthused. I see lots of incre- lots of eyes on phones. That's okay. okay. All right.
0: <laughs> so um, like, thank like you, Han, for <laughs> laughing. I
3: appreciate that. I love, I love
0: a So the virtualization environment. So this is basically a view graph that that displays everything that Vince just said. How we go about creating these high fidelity virtual environments. We don't have to get into the depth of this uh, in the interest of time. So let's move away from the environment. Let's start to look at virtual machine introspection. Kind of went over that, glossed over a little bit what virtual machine introspection is. Uh, Let's get down into the nitty gritty here. Okay, so with a hypervisor, can we go in through this hypervisor and you know there are some solutions here that already exist for virtual machine introspection uh, we would like to take a different approach and a lot of the reasons are here I mean the, the api's exist in some of these hypervisors to do t- some re- not remedial but um, basic basic yeah some more basic. Type of uh, virtual machine introspection. But you can see right here on the right side these rings, right? So you have to pass through a couple different rings, the context switches, which involves some overhead in trying to gather information out of these virtual machines. So we said, well, let's take a different approach. Let's just build a rootkit, essentially a hypervisor rootkit that goes directly into the hypervisor so we don't have to worry about that. We can live in kernel space, pull the information out directly to minimize the impact on that virtual machine. Um,
3: and the reason for that, right, is if you think, so uh, tools exist, right? Le- 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 VMI. Uh, uh, then access a variety of other tools, right? But when we're talking about rings, right, the, the challenge is computationally, right? Uh, in order for me to get the VM, uh, get VMI in and out of of uh, the virtual machines, it's computationally expensive, right? So if you think about how much data we want to pull, imagine if you want to pull everything, every system call, every binary, every, uh, every executable that was ever loaded into that box in real time. Uh, uh, there's there's great tools out there, however, they're not built for that. They're built for very targeted questions. They're saying, hey, I want to build, uh, I, I want to gather, you know, this specific system call, or I want to access, uh, get all, um, you know, f- file I.O. primitives off of the system. And we said, hey, let's take a different approach and say, could, if I could, could I pull everything uh, from the virtual machine and then store it somewhere? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what Will is alluding to.
0: Yeah, exactly. So the idea is like, let's get all the information and data first and then we have it let's reason about it but we have to have everything first cuz you can't go back in time at that point right you have to have everything right there and then so the initial idea um, you kind of went over this i kind of went over this is that vm's run until a uh, virtual machine requires a vm exit that's that's the uh, the act of the virtual machine requesting access from the hypervisor to some type of resource that the hypervisor provides from the operating system the underlying operating system so that is what we hook yes sir
4: have you guys done a Pareto analysis to figure out the twenty percent you need to gather? That might make eighty percent of the difference because this is a wide open world. Sure. Yep. Yeah. So no, we have
3: not. Uh, I think we've worked in lots of different spaces and using sort of commercial tools and said, let's fuse that. So you think of things. Uh, lots of tools provide data, right? So IPSs, IDSs, firewalls, uh, host-based information like uh, host-based agents. Uh, we said. You know, it goes back to my comment about the science of cyber, right? So we don't know, and we don't know how to reason about a lot of things, and so we, I agree, we need to get there and to sort of do the analysis to say what is the most valuable information to cost to to, to reduce the cost of both storage and I/O to search this information. But we have took the other approach, which was let's gather everything we can and figure out what's important, right? Because the challenge for us is. Uh, You know, especially as a network defender, uh, there may not be a sensor necessarily that indicates that this is a compromise, right? So how do I investigate that and how do I create causality and relationships off that data in some meaningful way when I may not know that exists? So as we run experiments, right, we learned a lot as we worked with red teams, right? It's like red teams are very creative, adversaries are very creative. And when I say, let me just look at file I.O. Or let me just look at this specific thing. It's interesting, you, you can evolve and find a specific system, system call that may be a trigger that gets you to another point that creates a causal relationship between, you know, file access, network access, and ex- exploit. So that's, that's the reason why we, we, we decided to say, let's, let's take the kitchen sink mm-hmm. and see if it's possible first.
0: Right, and we've been subtracting features over time. So we've noticed that like certain things are just congesting and being super noisy when we pull out all the data and we take them out. Because it may not be adding any purpose. But the the option still exists. Okay. Um, So I'm going to pick it it up a little bit. Sure. Uh, So at a low level, what what can we get out of hooking the VM exit handle? So we can pull out things like system calls that are directly relevant to the virtual machine itself. But we can also pull out um, more targeted things like uh, Windows functions and things like that as well as uh, injecting things back into the virtual machine. So it's a, two, it's a two-way, two-way road in that respect.
1: So how do you protect the hook? I think that's very critical.
0: Sure. And that's, that's one of the research questions that we have as well, right? Yeah. I think, um, yeah, one of our papers, we look at that, the, uh, the cloud paper. We look at that. So yeah, we want to be able to protect that. If somebody, you know, there are all types of different attacks. So if someone does like a breakout attack and they want to get into that, you know, that, 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 could be a, that could definitely be a problem. Um, but that's that's an open research question for ourselves as well. Yeah. How would you protect the hook? Uh,
1: <laughs> there are yeah. ways.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. So why do we why do we go the path we wanted to? <clears throat> so our VMI is based completely on a KVM, the Kernel Virtual Machine uh, hypervisor, hypervisor for the Linux systems. Uh, we, we didn't want to be able to. We wanted to just be able to drop the hook into. Um, any type of system. So we wanted to minimize any of the dependencies that, you would, that would normally go with uh, implementing a virtual machine introspection tool. So we didn't want to have to patch KVMI. We had previous projects that actually did this where we were uh, dependent on a particular version of KVM. Well, you know, with the updates and things like that and open source software, that, that dies out very, very quickly. So we wanted to be able to, to have a, a kernel module that we could insert and remove um, at, at whim. Um, and then the only dependencies was basically a compiler, a C compiler. Compile it on the end system. Bang, you have your kernel module. Drop it and pull it out as need be. It uh, also lends itself to portability on different systems as well. Uh, we did not want to be able, we did not want to have to u- utilize uh, any type of dependency, particularly with things like symbol tables. So you'll see a lot of uh, virtual machine introspection tools that require the symbols for their particular operating system. Well, we didn't want to have to do that. We wanted to be able to do things dynamically. So you insert the kernel module onto the endpoint or onto the host, bang, and just walks memory and then determines heuristically what are the symbols and um, correlate corresponding to uh, that virtual machine's print uh, imprint in memory.
3: Another thing is we saw as patching as uh, a lot of Windows patching has evolved. Um, we've seen that as uh, patches uh, change, uh, they remove they remove things like symbols for specific functions. As you see that, you lose context, right? So you may rely on a specific piece of uh, specific system call or a specific symbol. Uh, we, we didn't really necessarily want to be bound to that, right? So we want to be able to say, hey, uh, if I'm collecting this information now and exists in the future, we want to continue to be able to collect that without having to depend on uh, third party symbol libraries.
0: And of course, everything is done at runtime. So we inject it, it determines what kind of an operating system it is, and then fills out the symbol table which we then use to pull out uh, certain uh, Windows functions and the parameters. High level abilities. So at very high level, what can we do with that? We can gather process information that is uh, corresponding to the user, command line entries, the PE images that are, in, uh, that are ex- uh, executed on the, the endpoint itself. Uh, we can look at the DLLs or executables that are loaded on that v- particular virtual machine. Additionally, we can actually pull those out of memory. Uh, as they're loaded. So if something never gets written to disk, we can still pull it out of memory as it's executed. Uh, we have specific API hooks, and these are the things that we can tailor. So if we notice that we try to uh, pull a particular API hook that is providing excessive amounts of noise, well, we can take that out on the fly and not have to worry about that any longer. Or we can pull it, put it, uh, inject it back onto the, the kernel module itself so we can gather that type of information. We can run arbitrary functions within the virtual machine. Um, primarily to do things like redirection. And uh, if we have time, we can, we can look at a couple demos there. And of course, we can input. So we can put uh, commands into the virtual machine to change some things about the state. And again, this is all agentless, right? So this is coming from the hypervisor. So these aren't necessarily originating within the virtual machine itself. So if somebody's on the virtual machine, all of a sudden, their system time, time starts changing, they're not going to notice that it's coming from a particular agent. It's actually transparent to them. All right, so for the SDN aspect, uh, as Vincent mentioned, uh, this was started at the the, the genesis of SDN really coming into the research space. And so we said, well, let's take advantage of this so we can do away with all the the little uh, constraining protocols that normally go with uh, communication systems. Let's build it up from the ground up Closely integrates with cloud type or virtual type uh, environments, and let's, mal- let's make let's create a malleable fabric, network fabric that we can control or we can uh, extract information from. So the idea here is that we would have our virtual machines go through an SDN controlled fabric that we could then pull information out. That we could also change the the particular uh, attributes of a network. So if we're looking at VLANs, if we're looking at uh, IP addresses, MAC addresses, so we can change those types of things. Uh, additionally, we can also redirect the connectivity from a virtual machine to any other endpoint within that virtual environment, so that we can do things like man-in-the-middle on the fly um, with some other the different technologies that we have at Sandia. Additionally, since we own the fabric, we also have um, uh, layer 7 DPI Tool sets that we've written to not only extract class or to classify certain types of data, but also to pull out metadata that we uh, we believe is important to uh, to uh, basically uh, what determine what's happening on host correlated back to network or vice versa.
3: That's one of the interesting things, right? As you think about it, as you start pulling the thread and trying to understand what's happening, why is it happening, where is it happening, right? You, so from a forensics perspective, we want to try to piece all those p- things together and be able, right? So if you're taking pcap, you're gonna have to. But we didn't want to do offline analysis, right? So could we do online analysis of everything? And that's why we're trying to do a real-time DPI, right? Is to enable us to say, let's extract this metadata and be able to fuse that without having to do it afterwards. Mm
0: -hmm. Exactly. So the high-level methodology here with with regard to an operational network and a deception network is that you would have somebody attacking an operational asset within the environment itself. That's, um, you can see little attacker guy up there, uh, attacking (laughs) some virtual machine within our network. That virtual machine over time has communicated with S1, S2, and S3, Um, and we're not talking about the detection mechanisms here. Right, because that's not really the business that we're into. Um, so nat- naturally, naturally, something else would alarm a, an analyst that something is happening within the network. Um, given some period of time, that's ar- an arbitrary period of time that can be specified. We say, okay, this particular virtual machine is communicated with S1, S2, and S3 over this period of time that we are, are, are interested in. So at that pr- at that point, we can initiate a what we call a live migration. So this uh, virtual machine is. is Migrated from the operational network into the deception network. And those three, S3, S1, S2, and S3, are essentially cloned. These are cloned virtual machines that go into the deception network so that as this adversary begins to look at things in the network, in this deception network, there's familiarity. He realizes, he recognizes these particular virtual machines are still there so that he's not tipped off. Um, Using SDN, we install static flows from that adversary into the deception network so that they cannot get back into the operational network. And that also allows, through the cloning, uh, the cloning. Process allows us to go back into this operational network, do types of remediation, things like that. So you can
3: patch, you can remediate, right, without having to impact the rest of operations. And the hope is, right, if there's active connections, right. If you, I wanted to pull on this just a little bit. If you think about it, right, there's active connections going on, right. So if you think about what we traditionally do is we pull the plug, right. So if an adversary is coming in and saying, hey, I'm on this box, I am, I have an active TCP connection with the SDN controller, we're able to say, okay, let's take this this machine clone it and actually take their network state all their active network state all the active connections the c2 that they may have the interactions they have with that system and then move them to a new new environment usually people say (laughs) no okay
0: (laughs) of course there are a lot of gotchas there and um we're not able to go through everything here but so um some of the operating modes that we alluded to earlier and and this is in order of increasing cost and increasing fidelity right so you're going to have a trade-off between the, the greatest fidelity, high fidelity uh, deception environment and the cost that comes with that. So the first is, of course is a VM replacement. So can we take this flow? Yes, we can take this flow and then migrate it to a, a what we call a warm VM. And that's a VM that matches some of the similar attributes of that previous VM that it was migrated from. Um, not the highest fidelity, but it serves some purpose for people with low cost who can't tolerate uh, things like cloning and like that. So it works well with Physical machine. So, if you have a physical machine, migrate the flow over to something else. Uh, VM isolation and quarantine. So, this is actually masking off certain parts of this operational network. And you've seen uh, there are a couple of vendors that do this type of thing. Uh, Of course, this will in turn cut off that connection to an external entity, which does what? It it disallows us from getting any more intelligence about what they're doing. This is essentially equivalent to the uh, cutoff approach of pulling the plug. Uh, the next, w- next level up is service, uh, uh, forking and service migration. So this is the idea of cloning virtual machines, right? Cloning virtual machines into a network or a subset of the network is cloned to provide this high fidelity deception environment. And the last, of course, is running parallel deception networks, high, high, high cost. So this is lockstep, having virtual machines that are completely in lockstep with a, an operational network, high cost. But again, this does provide the greatest amount of fidelity for a deception network. All right, so guest and network data fusion. So we take from the, the KVMI, which was the hypervisor, um, the hypervisor VMI, virtual machine introspection tool, we take that, all the data that comes out of that, um, in conjunction with the network data, which is uh, all the flow rules that are established at any given time within the network, as well as the DPI information and the DPI metadata, and we merge that with um, all of the virtual machine information that we've pulled. So we have virtual machine uh, vpids, the the modules and drivers loaded, system calls, machine processes, uh, machine files, sockets, uh, system fs type files. We'll get over that. We'll get into that in a little bit. And we have fields that uh, essentially correlate between all of these different source types so that we can start to stitch together what's happening in real time or after the fact um, in a network. use case analyses. All right, so again, going back to the original theme, um, you can already see the malleability of the the platform itself. You can basically use this for any any type of uh, An analysis, deception network, uh, cybersecurity platform. But for the the theme here is we're talking about threat intelligence, right? So how can we get some information out of this network that is tangible that we can then feed back to the network defender that says, okay, here's what we've gotten. We have certain signatures, certain attributes of this particular actor. We can take that data and say, okay, now we have a signature that we can can bring back to the network defender that they can use for further uh, protection of the network. And so these, these are just a few of the different use cases that we have here. Um, the first one is VM as a platform for bad actors. So, for this particular use case, you might have someone who jumps on a host and tries to steal certain information from that particular host or uploads and downloads files onto that host. Uh, what can we get out of that signature, such as hashes or particular file types that are, are dropped onto that? He's going to walk
3: through all of these in a minute and just do a deep dive and just walk through things like the UI and the data we're collecting. Do you want to just jump to? Yeah, let's, yeah, let's jump, jump to maybe one or two of these so we can have time to go through them. Uh, lots of words. Lots of words. Um, yeah. Do you just want to go to use case two? Start there. Okay. Uh,
0: So VM as an exploited endpoint. Okay, so this is is a little long one. Um, So essentially, a a virtual machine user or a user on a a particular clean endpoint visits a a malicious website. Uh, This is the drive-by download. If everyone's familiar with the drive-by download. okay, this is the drive-by download. Um, The attacker gains access and controls the particular endpoint that has downloaded the the malware and then starts to pivot through the network and so what have we done here so kvMI introspects all the information from the VMs we have network forensic logs that correlate that guest data to the network data and so we can essentially step through these logs to show what has happened um, not all the log data is here but uh, enough is here to show what we're looking at so the first one is an administrator logs into a vulnerable workstation and uh, visits a phishing website and so this is, all, this is all canned, but the, the website is attacker.com, and so we can see that within the DPI log, we've extracted the metadata particular to a DNS request. This attacker.com, and we've also got the IP address that goes along with it. The next thing is the attacker compromises that uh, endpoint through a vulnerability, a server light vulnerability within the web browser itself, and we can see that vulnerability come through uh, a, uh, another DPI log. And then it opens a meta-interpreter port on our meta port on uh, port 2222, and we also see that uh, maybe not here, but we'll see it um, a little bit later. The attacker then starts a new process in Notepad Exe, and it migrates to that process, um, so that if the user should close the, the browser, he'll still be resident on the endpoint machine, and so we see that here with the opening of notepad.exe. And then the attacker uploads a binary and executes it on the endpoint. And you can see this here, uh, notepad.exe is actually executing or creating a file. It's executing a file called binary.exe, which is kind of strange. Why would notepad uh, be executing a binary here? And so at this point, the attacker then downloads a file located on the, the endpoints machine. And so from the, the logs, we can see that he's starting to, he uh, opens up explorer.exe and starts to walk the directory. So you can see that here uh, looking at the desktop. All right, and then he runs HashDump and loads Mimikatz to collect some passwords. And at this point, he uses those passwords to pivot to another machine within the network. Um, and you can see some of the IPs are changed here, and then uh, it actually opens up a, a communication channel back to, the, uh, back to his uh, endpoint over port 3333, and we see that here. OK, and then as information is transferred back, we can see some high entropy URLs that are going back to that attacker machine. Uh, very indicative of uh, some attacks that we've seen. Okay, and so in, this is one part of the, of the former UI. We're actually developing, as, as Vincent, Vince mentioned, uh, using some temporal graph representations of the data. Uh, previous UI, though, we can see the flows as they're established on the endpoints, and as they connect back from uh, endpoint one to the active directory machine, and then all the way back to this green dot, uh, which we've had to blur out the, the IP address to. Okay. So we got like five minutes left. Uh, the other, w- okay, so this is uh, using cloud as a relay. So uh, this is another use case where if we had some, own some portion of some cloud network, could we be able to see, uh, tie back, maybe the use case here is botnets, right? So if you have a virtual machine that's being leveraged as a botnet, could we tie back the activity on that particular virtual machine to an application? And so this is a quick one. Um, and so from our, the data we extract from the virtual machine itself. We can tie back to uh, the connected connections from the the Windows API to particular endpoints, uh, IP addresses, and we can tie them back to the applications themselves. So this is tied back to explorer.exe. So from here, we can start jumping off and correlating that data to other things that are going on the virtual machine using the PID of the virtual machine, as well as any uh, further communications with IP addresses using the DPI log or the the flow logs.
3: And the hope from there, right, is that we start correlating, you know, so system call information exists, right, so when you create a socket, a socket has to have an ephemeral port. You walk through all of that and you can start really correlating process to socket to network flow, to associated process information, right? So you're going to have a full take of information, so you can really start looking at what is the causal relationship between a process, a specific system call, a specific registry key change, and what is making that change, and what information uh, is transferring over the wire at the same time.
0: There you go. Okay. So we have a couple more use cases, again, since we're limited on time, we just tended to focus on how we can extract some threat intelligence type data. So,
3: so right, uh, hopefully, uh, right, the hope, right, from a mindset perspective, I think we've really got to think, rethink about how we're gathering information about people and how we're, they're, they're interacting with our system, right? At the end of the day, right, being able to understand the motivation and the techniques that they're using to get on our boxes is sort of… Uh, the for me the the basis for us starting to develop better defenses and at least for us this was a starting point to start being able to say okay let me try to run an experiment with a potential adversary in some uh, a low-risk environment and a low-risk fashion such that i can interact with them and and start changing both the state and gathering information about them and then providing them breadcrumbs be it virtual machines be it services be it data and then have them sort of navigate throughout my network and then learn something about them, right? Like, there's a lot of interesting information you can start pulling, like how they start commands, how they, uh, uh, what, where in the file system they start looking. Um, those, are, I think, are all transient information that's often lost by a lot of other systems. And that's what you need to start looking at, is saying, okay, so really when you start attributing, hey, uh, someone's doing something to me, the question is, what are they doing? How are they doing it? When did they get there? And then how are they navigating sort of your network? i think these are the things that we want to do so um the the other part of it right is is being able to change the network state and we didn't really get through the demonstration but it's also changing things on the network and things on the import such that you can introduce doubt be it doubt in uh what the data they're pulling the doubt on the environment itself doubt in execution of of a binary uh, just so that they have to do more work in order to understand what's going on in the network and that's that's part of what we're trying to do and then finally it's a it's really the correlation right so all this information should be able to autonomously be pulled and you can navigate and understand this information such that you can create uh, actual intelligence to inform your operational de- defense infrastructure so you can develop things like your signatures or uh, uh, sort signatures in such a way that uh, you can inform future decision and defense techniques questions excitement quiet I understand
4: yes sir so y- y- it sounds like at this point, you're not really at a, a spot where you can say, you could execute a deception that would cause the attacker to gather information that will totally, not just technically, but from an operational perspective, confuse, you know, confuse them in terms of what reality is. That, that's a whole different. That's you know, a, whole of, different a whole different, whole different
3: research okay. area, right? I think a lot yeah. of it is just for us, it was using creating a platform, right? So yeah. right we're engineers, we like to build stuff. Yeah. And that's really where we started was building a platform such that we can start asking reasoning and interacting with someone in some pseudo fi- safe fashion. I think this is pretty cool because I've seen other people very
4: experienced people on a network where there's open collaboration networks verbally say, we've been hacked, don't <laughs> tell anyone. And I'm going, I think the bad guys heard that. <laughs> and they would never do that on a radio network. They exactly. They shift to another radio network continue traffic on the first one as yep. if nothing ever happened, and then conduct business securely elsewhere. So it's
3: good to see. You. It's been fun. Any other questions? You guys are quiet. Quiet bunch, huh? What's your name, sir? Uh, Thanks, Jim. All right. Cool. Yeah,
0: so with the questions, um, sorry we didn't get to the videos. They're pretty interesting videos. So uh, maybe another day, another time. Thank you. Sure, yeah, 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 Yeah. you can definitely come up or you can hang around here. Um, Yeah.
3: Thanks.